I'm a white guy who lives on the Eastern Shore on a horse farm. I am not somebody who can really understand what it is to, to deal with disparities. I, I've never experienced discrimination. I can't understand it the way that someone who experiences it is. One of the mistakes that I think some of the public health folks make, and very well-meaning, is they don't communicate with the actual people who are experiencing it. So I think one of the things we need to do is we need to take health policy people like me and my physicians and get them in the room with the patients who are experiencing the problems and try to understand what the barriers are that are causing them to have issues. And I think the barriers are going to be a little different depending on the disease state. You know, when we're talking to a group of people about diabetes, it might be the fact that they live in a food desert. It might be the fact that they just don't understand or know what they're supposed to be doing. They might not have access to a safe space to go for a walk every day or to exercise. I don't, I, I don't, I can guess on those matters, but I've lived in a very blessed life and I've been very lucky. And, and I understand that other people have not and that our society has been very unfair to certain classes of people and we need to uh, communicate with them as well when we're coming up with these solutions. And sometimes it seems to me that a lot of the solutions are made by people who don't have that discussion with those people. Listeners, thank you for downloading this episode of Defining Health Equity from the people on the front lines. I'm David Chernov, your host for the show. If this is the first episode of the show you are listening to, thank you. Your support for this podcast from all over the world is gratifying and will contribute to making a difference in addressing health equity. We are all in this together. Health equity affects us all, not just the folks that are directly affected by health equity, or rather health inequity. Our goal of this show is to not only define what health equity means, but to do it in a way that gets everyone involved with the discussion, which is what we need to do to make a significant change in the healthcare system. And the premise of this show is that we have to explain health equity in terms and examples that everyone can understand, not just the brilliant healthcare leaders that are talking about health equity now. And that is what we were going to do today. Thank you again for listening. And don't forget to click on the subscribe button for this episode so you were the first to get the latest episode as they were created. Our next guest on the show may have been closer to the front lines of COVID, other than the physicians in the emergency room, than anyone. Jane Ransom has represented the 22,000 frontline physicians in Maryland for an organization called MedCi for almost 27 years, and as CEO for the past 14 years last month. Do you think Gene had to take some calls from his panicked physicians during COVID? We are going to hear from the inside what actually happened when COVID virtually closed the door of physician practices just a short time ago and how they are rebuilding from this disaster. More importantly, we are hoping we will hear from Gene how we might be better prepared for the next epidemic and what we are doing differently to avert a similar catastrophe. Gene Ransom is the current CEO of MedCi, the Maryland State Medical Society. He is a lifelong resident of Queen Anne's County and former president of the County Commission. Gene was elected to the Queen Anne's County Commission in November of 2002 and was the only incumbent county commissioner re-elected in the 2006 election. Gene graduated cum laude from the University of Maryland with honors in economics and the University of Baltimore Law School. 
Gene served in numerous leadership positions during his career, including president of the commission, vice president of the commission, and a voting member of the Queen Anne's County Planning Commission from 2004 to 5. Gene also served the public as an elected member of the Democratic Central Committee, a member of the Electoral College in 2008, and president of the Young Democrats of Maryland, as well as numerous and local state appointments to boards and commissions. Gene, welcome to the show. And what did I miss? Oh, I don't think you necessarily miss anything. I think the um, the most important point when it comes to health equity is that I represent the physicians, and I and I want to say I think the physician community understands we have a long way to go. You know, I think I think that they want to know what needs to be done to make a difference and change, and they're focused on the problem. Where maybe when I first started working for MedKai uh, 26 years ago as a young lawyer, they weren't or many of them weren't as aware that the problem existed, where now I think there's a higher level of awareness. And Gene, that story, that story, your ascension to leading, what is it, 22,000 physicians? Did I say that? There there are a little over 22,000 physicians in Maryland. We have uh, about 10,000 members, and we have about uh, 15,000 who purchase some kind of services from one of the MedKai subsidiaries or companies as well. So we touch a lot of docs in Maryland and and have a high favorability. But we MedKai is the seventh oldest medical society in the United States. We're about 50 years older than the AMA. We were formed in 1799. And it's kind of an incredible, interesting organization that's morphed over the years. In fact, I'm really excited, David, we're going to be celebrating our 225th anniversary in 2024. So we're already planning a bunch of great celebrations and everything and uh, very excited about our long history in medicine in America. Well, that's beautiful, Gene. But before you go on, we we want to learn a little bit more about you, uh, the role that you have, thirty almost 30 years in the making. You you started, you know, we talked earlier about your your beginning, but but how the heck did you come to lead all the PCPs in the state of Maryland? How did you get to this spot? Well, it's kind of funny. So I graduated from law school. I went to the University of Baltimore. I graduated from law school and I'm looking for a job. Uh, I had uh, I was thinking about clerking for a judge and it didn't work out because my infinite wisdom, I just picked the one judge I wanted to clerk for and and he didn't pick me. And I'm looking for a job. So I took a grant position as a young lawyer. There were three of us, actually three young lawyers who were working in this unit. Uh, at the time, this the medical society, MedKai had a contract to review cases uh, for the Board of Physicians, and I would do legal work reviewing cases. And after being there for a short period of time, the CEO was fired, and the general counsel took over as CEO. He took a liking to me and said, hey, you know, I'm going to move you to the general counsel's office. You can work as associate counsel. If you want to practice a little on the side and do your politics, you can. Uh, and I did that for a long time, just being a lawyer for them in the general counsel's office and had a little practice on the Eastern sure. And I was involved in politics. And as you know, I was elected and I did my thing. And then um, about 15 years ago or so, um, that CEO left, they brought an interim in, he didn't really work out real well. And I ended up deciding to take the job and kind of leave political office. And and I I run the society now. It's kind of weird. Uh, People don't move up in these in jobs the way they used to. This would have been a more logical ascension in, in 1940 or 1950, but not now. So I am kind of a unicorn. Yeah, you are. You are. And we're going to talk about that. I think that's important because you have the trust of the frontline physicians. And speaking of trust and frontline physicians, I want to talk about COVID for a moment because I want to talk about what maybe we have changed in the areas in reference to health equity. In other words, and here's the question, 
what happened during COVID such that we have learned something new and we're making changes in the healthcare system to not only avert another disaster, but more appropriately affect social determinants of health around health equity? I think this is a great point. So we have always known, I mean, there have been researchers in different places and universities and other places that have known that we have a health equity problem. They know the data. They can tell you that if you're black, you're more likely to have diabetic problems or or if you're brown or if you're whatever. They could tell you that. They could tell you that your MMR rates are much worse if you're a minority. But the issue is, is the frontline physician, the frontline nurse, the practitioner didn't know that. When COVID occurred, particularly in the state of Maryland, but I think this happened somewhat nationwide, but I really think particularly in the state of Maryland, the state did a couple things in conjunction with MedKai on some and some on their own. In conjunction with MedKai, they did regular phone calls where they talked about COVID and MedKai would host them and, and accredit them for CME. And the health department through Dr. Haft or one of the secretaries or others would talk to them about different public health issues and inequities, and there would be communication about it. But the other thing they did was they published the data, breaking it down. In fact, if you go on the Maryland Department website right now, you'll see the COVID data with deaths and incidents by race and ethnicity. And that data was pushed out to the practitioner. So unlike the data just kind of being measured and reviewed in academic institutions, it went out to the frontline people and nurses and pharmacists and physicians could see who was getting it. And it showed, uh, like many other public health problems, that it was worse for people who were uh, in, a, in, a, in a minority. Are you suggesting the data has always been there and nobody really cared to pay attention to it until this crisis? And now they're forced to confront the reality. Is, is that what you're suggesting? I don't know that I'm saying it as boldly as you just said it, but I think you're right, really. Essentially, I think the data has been there. And with the exception of some people, maybe in government institutions and in academic centers who looked at it and knew about it and wrote journal articles about it, I think a lot of other folks maybe were not thinking about it and were not maybe worrying about it. But as it begins to get pushed out, and I think one of the things we really need to do from a public health point of view moving forward is learn from the COVID experience and communicate the data out to the practitioners so they can see it. And you can't solve a problem if you're not aware of it and you're not measuring it and you're not paying attention to it. So I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle. I don't think it's everything, but I think it's part of it. So the MMR data, for example, is really bad. Is maternal mortality. It's it's when 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 there's a death of a mother within a certain period of time after a birth. By the way, the data suggests what two and a half, three times more likely to die. Yep. Yes, that is absolutely correct. And even more shocking than that, David, is the fact that the numbers for black and brown people are getting worse, and the numbers for white people are getting better. So, folks, this is what we used to call um, third world country numbers. Right. It's now the developing country, but this is happening in the United States. I, I just want to repeat this. Women of color are two and a half to three times more likely to die in childbirth mm-hmm. or a childbirth related illness. So, so my point is, is like we need to, as that data comes out, to report it and report it out to the OBGYNs, to the pediatricians, to the primary care docs so they can understand it and see it. And then we can begin to develop solutions for it. Uh, I think like you and I know these data facts, right? But if I went to the average practitioner, are they aware 
of how bad the situation is. And then the other thing we need to do is once we start seeing this data, we need to create programs and opportunities that target these communities to try to solve the problem. You know, and, and one of the things I will say that I think, and I think about this a lot, you know, I'm a white guy who lives on the Eastern shore on a horse farm. I am not somebody who can really understand what it is to, to deal with disparities. I, I've never experienced discrimination. I can't understand it the way that someone who experiences it is. One of the mistakes that I think some of the public health folks make and very well-meaning is they don't communicate with the actual people who are experiencing it. So I think one of the things we need to do is we need to take health policy people like me and my physicians and get them in the room with the patients who are experiencing the problems and try to understand what the barriers are that are causing them to have issues. And I think the barriers are going to be a little different depending on the disease state. You know, when we're talking to a group of people about diabetes, it might be the fact that they live in a food desert. It might be the fact that they just don't understand or know what they're supposed to be doing. They might not have access to a safe space to go for a walk every day or to exercise. I don't, I, I don't, I can guess on those matters, but I've lived in a very blessed life and I've been very lucky. And, and I understand that other people have not, and that our society has been very unfair to certain classes of people. And we need to uh, communicate with them as well when we're coming up with these solutions. And sometimes it seems to me that a lot of the solutions are made by people who don't have that discussion with those people. Exactly. You you make you make a, a, an excellent point, Gene. I was going to go there, but you beat me to it. So you're suggesting the data was earlier. You said the data was always out there, but we weren't really looking at it. COVID forced us to look at that data, and now we understand there's a problem. But you brought you brought up something about communication. You talked about people that look like me, old white guys. Well, I'm an old white guy anyway. A couple of white guys. How are we going to communicate the message? Because folks look at us. If we go into the community and start talking about you should do this, you should do that, it's not going to work. How do you feel about this thing, this uh, concept called community health workers, where folks that are actually members of the community take that data that you referenced, they understand it, but now they're able to communicate to the communities in need, often communities in color, in language and in, in, in ways that they understand do you feel that will make a change? I think that can be very helpful. In fact, uh, MedKai is involved in a care transition organization as part of the Maryland Primary Care Program, where the federal government and the Maryland Primary Care Program gives extra money to physicians to hire care managers and people like you're discussing to go out and talk to Medicare patients and try to improve their care and communicate with them in a way that they understand it. But I also think there's a second part to this. It's not just about us communicating to them what they need. It's us listening to them about what their issues are, because we might look at it and go, okay, well, they're not eating right. They're not exercising enough and they're not getting regular checkups with their physician. And that might be what we say. But if we sit down with a group of patients who are having trouble with indices who fit into those categories and talk to them, they might say to us, there's nowhere I can get fresh fruit or vegetables in my neighborhood. I don't have a ride to the doctor's office because the bus system doesn't work in Baltimore City at all. It's a disaster. And I miss my appointments for my physician. And I can't afford 
my high copay or deductible. I'm lucky enough to have a job, but I, I have a horrible insurance plan and the insurer is making me pay this big deductible and I can't afford to pay out of pocket a hundred bucks or 200 bucks to see my doctor. Yeah. Or I don't, I don't have insurance. All right. Well, that's, that's actually a much more solvable problem in Maryland because in Maryland, we have a really good package of insurance. So if they say they don't have insurance, that's great because we can fix that one. We can enroll them in Medicaid or we can get them on the exchange. So the bigger problem, in my opinion, and again, though, I, I'm arguing for talking to the folks and hearing what they have to say, is not necessarily not having ins- insurance. It's having bad insurance. It's having insurance that doesn't really cover the stuff. Or there are also all these kind of rules and procedures that insurance companies use to save money that also prevent people from getting care. But there might be other things that, I mean, I'm telling you things I understand from my experience or from talking to people. From my experience, from my experience. Right. So, but I don't know. I really think it's important that we hear from the patient's experience, you know? Um, and, and I think that's really important as part of this because I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> I know that I don't know it, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> that's helpful. Yeah. You brought up a topic, Gene. I don't know how many times we've, we've, we've come, we've done this podcast and it comes down to these things called social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. I mean, just about every guest brings us to, and that's where you're going is, uh, guess what? The reason I can't eat healthy is there's no, there's no grocery stores near me. And the reason I don't see my PCP is I don't have transportation. These are social determinants of health issues. And so we're back to that again. So here's my question. Uh, are we finally paying attention to what folks are saying is 80% of the problem? Health is what, 10 or 20% actual clinical health? It's the other 80% that are social determinants of health that in all fairness, guys like you and me, listen, I've known you a long time. I can say this. Guys like you and me, we can't figure out why don't you go to the doctor? Why don't you fill your prescriptions? Why don't you take your meds? We can't figure that out. We've never been able to figure that out. Is it So, so here's the question. Is it finally time to start putting money and energy into social determinants of health and how do the PCPs that you represent play a role in that? So, so the answer is yes. And and I think one of the things, for example, is there are these things called Z codes. And, and Z codes, for your listeners who haven't heard of them, are modifiers that physicians could bill for working on social determinants of health and disparity issues. Almost no insurance carrier covers them. They don't pay for it. So they're not incentivizing physicians to do that work or focus on it. There are very few programs that actually pay for the care managers that you talk about, that you, we talked about earlier. So we, we are talking about doing this, but we're not actually doing it. And the question is, you know, how, how can we determine actionable items where we can make a real difference without running costs through the roof? And, and that's the hard part here. And I think what we really need to do is have an honest discussion. And Maryland is the perfect state to do this because we have rate setting with GB with, with global budgets for hospitals. So there's opportunity for them to invest. They could use their global budget funds to invest in population health. And folks, what this means, I, I have to, this is a very complicated concept. So forgive me again for interrupting you. Gene, Gene's going to like hate me after this podcast, but I, (laughs) but, but I promised our, our viewers that we would explain it in terms that they could understand. Uh, Gene is relating to, and Gene, correct me if I'm wrong. Gene is relating to the state of Maryland is the only state in the country where a hospital, I'm making it very simplistic because that's how I understand things. They're given a lump sum of cash. This is your budget for the year. So hospitals are motivated 
motivated to reduce costs because if they do more, they might not get paid for it. And so I think this is what Gene is related to. But it's going to appear as though it's going to appear as though Gene and I practice this because he's going down the path that I was going to take him next, which is about money. Because at the end of the day, and Gene, listen, correct me if I'm wrong. It's about money. It motivates behavior. It's just business. And so the physicians, and I think this is where you're going. I'll stop talking, I promise. But I think this is where you're going. There has to be motivation for these physicians to do what they need to do in regard to social determinants of health, preventative health care. They need to get paid for it because they're running a business, right? Is this kind of where you're where you're going, Gene? Right. And 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 I, and look, we might or might not like that. There are probably some people who think that healthcare shouldn't be a business. That's fine, but that's the structure we have today. That physicians are either in private practice by themselves or they're employed by someone who's trying to make money running those providing those services. So, if that's what the system that we have, we have to incentivize them. And the way you incentivize them is with economic incentives. I do think, too, there is another part of this, um, healthcare for the homeless. I was at their big gala Saturday night. It's an incredible organization. They're doing all kinds of wonderful things. I think there's also a government role in this in funding organizations like that. We should be supporting organizations like that because they help fill gaps. Uh, but back to my point about the resources, if you're in certain states, there are 12 states, for example, that chose not to expand Medicaid. In those states, the disparities are going to be far worse because you're limiting access. And if you're limiting access, it's going to be the poorest and it's going to be the most diverse people who are hurt. But in a state like Maryland, we fully expanded Medicaid. We have this unique hospital payment system that you described very well. We also are working on ways to expand healthcare through other mechanisms like the health insurance exchange, which the state of Maryland subsidizes at a higher level than other states. And right now there's legislation before the General Assembly that MedKai is supporting, along with a lot of other groups that would help provide uh, access to health and coverage to illegal immigrants. It would increase the ease and ability for people to sign up through the exchange, and it would aggressively add people um, to the Medicaid rolls who are on SNAP, but are not SNAP is food assistance, but are not on Medicaid. So we have a connection between the social services and the healthcare. So Maryland is doing things to create access. So the key is it's not just enough though to create access. We have to create incentives and we have to fill gaps with government programs to make sure that people who aren't getting access, get access to it and they use it appropriately. And let me make one other point, you know, because someone might go, oh, my goodness, David, where'd you get this bleeding heart liberal talking about providing all these services? The reality of it is, is for your for our listeners who are who are maybe more to the right of me, this is actually good economic sense too. Because from a practical reality, when we don't take care of people from a health perspective, what happens is they roll into the emergency room, they're required to, by law to get care, they run up massive bills that never get paid, and they end up getting paid by one of two entities: the government, which results in higher taxes, or by insurance, which results in higher insurance rates. So we pay for this anyway. So not only is it the right thing to do, it's less expensive to manage care this way. Long-term. Yeah, Gene, music to my ears. And this is really why we're doing this podcast. We want everybody to understand. We want everybody to understand. You're paying for it no matter what. If we don't take care of these people, to your point, that's how they show up, via transport. Listen, I worked for hospitals for years and years, and that's what we talked about. Oh, my God, our costs are out of control. What are we going to do? It's those transport, those emergency ambulances that show up to, to treat undiagnosed 
diabetes, for example, and we've got an amputation on our hands, then they go into a dialysis. People need to understand that Gene's point is just unbelievably valid. We are paying for it anyway. Folks, you can find all the information about Gene, his contact information, more information about MedKai in the show notes for this podcast. Uh, we are now live on all the social media outlets as well. So keep your eyes peeled. Oh, by the way, subscribe to the show. Subscribe to the show because it helps us get the message out. There's some algorithm that all these social media outlets are doing. And the more subscribers we have, the higher we get placed on search terms like what is health equity. And that's what Gene and I are trying to explain. This is what health equity is. So please hit the subscribe button and go to the show notes to get all the information about Gene. Uh, Gene has also has a wonderful website that talks about more of the work that MedKai is doing to, to help everybody here. And so, Gene, it's a blessing to talk to you. Keep up the great work. It just makes me feel good to hear about all the stuff that you're doing to uh, help with health equity in our state, which are national models that you pointed out so well. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Defining Health Equity from the people on the front lines. I would like to thank my wonderful guests for appearing today from the front lines and sharing their story of how health equity has impacted them and their thoughts about how we can finally address this issue and work together to resolve this health crisis. We want to hear from you, so let's make this easy. All you have to do is text us at 301 788 2237. Again, that text, you can send it to 301-788-2237 in the U.S. For our international users, and of course our U.S. users, you can also send us an email. And that email address is dchernov at maconsultingco.com. That's d-c-h-e-r-n-o-v at m-a-c-o-n S-U-L-T-I-N-G-C-O.com, or you can visit our website. Our website address is defininghealthequity.buzzsprout.com. That's again, defininghealthequity, all one word, no spaces, dot B-U-Z-Z-S-P-R-O-U-T.com. Just click on one of the episodes and look at the tab that says show notes. There you have all the information about our guest today. Give us your feedback, good or bad, suggestions for additional guests, or if you feel like you would be a good guest on our show, let us know. Remember, to create a significant change and a movement, we have to get everyone involved. Thanks again for listening to our podcast, and please join us on our next episode of Defining Health Equity from the people on the front lines.